to Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast that discusses Chinese culture and history through the lens of historical Chinese dramas. We're your hosts, Kathy and Karen. Today, we will discuss episode 71 of The Story of Minglan or The podcast is in English with proper nouns and certain Chinese phrases spoken in Mandarin Chinese. If you have any questions, please reach out to us via email at karenandkathy at chasingsdramas.com or else reach out to us on Instagram and Twitter. Please do leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to us to. As we normally do, we will do an episode recap, then go on to chat about culture and history portrayed in the episode, which is quite a lot today, and then wrap up with some book differences. Today is going to be a pretty long episode as there's a ton of history to discuss, so buckle up and enjoy the ride. In the last episode, Ming Lan was visited by her good friend Qi Hong and his wife, Madame Shen, to see what they could do to help her. We found out in the last episode that Gu Tingye has been stripped of his title and is to be sentenced to exile 2,000 miles or li away. So Qi Hong and his wife came to see what they could do to help Ming Lan. Well, that was initially Qi Hong's thought, but during the conversation, Madame Shen has shown that she is quite capable herself. This is a key turning point for their relationship because Qi Hong is clearly impressed. After the couple leave Minglan's Chen Gardens, Qi Hong actually takes Madame Shen out to dinner and is suddenly very attentive towards her. I don't think he even recognizes the shift himself, but Madame Shen is most certainly touched. Meanwhile, taking Qi Hong and Madame Shen's words to heart, Minglan decides that they should host a birthday celebration for her son. Now, this celebration is the Man Yue Jiu, which is a celebration for children after their first month of life. So, essentially, the translation is full moon uh, banquet. As Minglan works to prepare for the celebration, Qi Hong continues to help Minglan uncover what kinds of plots are in store for her. As he still has a title in court, he can more easily help investigate on her behalf and the Sheng family. Sure enough, Qi Hong is called to a courtyard where he and several detectives and guards find the body of Bai Da Long hanging from a rope. Bai Da Long is Gu Tingye's relative who spent his life trying to take back the Bai family fortune from Gu Tingye and was also gathered by Madame Qin to make false testimony against Gu Tingye in front of the emperor. While at first glance, the body's position suggests he hung himself because he, he was hanging from a rope, but eyewitnesses recount that he was actually forcibly hung there by men in black that took off over the walls. Qi Hong can only comment that this is a very intricate web that has been spun and the loose ends are being uh, disposed of. Why is this important? Clearly, Bai Dalang has been used to make a point in front of the emperor, but then was disposed of in order to prevent him from blabbing who all was involved in bringing him into the capital. 
All signs point to the fact that it was the Empress Dowager's men that killed Bai Dalong as loose lips sink ships. She did not want him around to let slip any important details about their schemes, even though, as we've seen in previous episodes, Bai Dalong probably had no idea of the full extent with which he was involved in. That doesn't matter for the Empress Dowager. She wanted him gone, and now he is gone. And now it's time for Ming Lan's son's celebration. This scene, I thought, was way too short and should have been much longer. There are a ton of people that return for literally 30 seconds in the scene to show their support for Ming Lan, and it's quite touching. Before we head over to the Chung Gardens, there's a brief scene with Ti Hong and his family again. Ti Hong and his wife are visited by his parents, who also present Ti Hong with a gift to give to Ming Lan's son. This is a short but heartwarming scene where Princess Ping Ning seems to finally let her judgment of Ming Lan go as she gifts Ming Lan's son with jade from her own dowry. That's an extravagant gift, even if the jade itself is small, and represents that she places Ming Lan in high enough regard to receive such a gift. Si Hong is relieved to see this from his mother, as it means they have all moved on with that past relationship. It's also good to see the princess give this gift because, once again, Minglan and her husband are seemingly out of favor from the emperor. So for her to do that is a big step from her. At Chung Gardens, the tables are set for a festive party, but for some reason, it's currently empty. Mulan, Minglan's fourth sister, is somehow the first to arrive and seeing that no guests have arrived, decides to start mocking Minglan. Mulan thinks that no one would deign to come to Minglan's banquet because of what's happened to her and her husband as well, which is a humiliation that Mulan cannot let go of. But only after a few pointed barbs from Mulan do two powerful and connected women arrive to support Minglan. They are Madame Zhang and the younger Shen sister. Just by the presence of these two women alone are enough to shut Mulan's mouth because Madame Zhang, as we are familiar with, is the wife of the state uncle and daughter of a duke herself. And the younger Shen sister is the younger sister of the current empress. Needless to say, both of these women outrank Mulan and Minglan for that matter. So for them to show up raises the status of this banquet. Mulan still tries to insult Minglan in front of Madame Zhang, who is having none of it and actually orders her staff to drag Mulan off. Madame Zhang is a certified badass, and I'm so glad she's a friend of Minglan's because, woo, Mulan has no option but to calm down, and it's just hilarious. The trio of women, Madame Zhang, Mulan, and the younger Shen sister sit at a table where Madame Zhang pointedly sits next to Mulan in order to prevent her from saying or doing anything uh, that would harm Minglan. She is such a good friend. We should all hope to have a friend like Madame Zhang. Soon after, plenty of people start pouring in for the banquet. We see a lot of cameos. For example, from Yan Zhan, Minglan's childhood friend, who Gu Tingye originally wanted to marry many years ago. 
Yan Ran married off somewhere else and has traveled to the capital to see Minglan for this festive occasion. She's not the only one to visit from far away. The cohort of relatives from Youyang, uh, meaning the Sheng family hometown, uh, also arrive, including Shu Lan and Ping Lan. Remember them? We met them in the mid-20s episodes when Minglan went over to visit with Grandma Sheng. Other guests we see include Ti Hong and Madame Shen, Zhu Lan and Hua Lan, so Minglan's fifth and oldest sister, respectively, as well as Minglan's aunt, Madame Wei. Dan Ju, Minglan's former maid, also return uh, to wish her former master well. I will say that was like a lot of people to catch up with or just kind of be reminded of because we haven't seen a bunch of them for so many episodes. I wonder how they filmed this scene because they were literally there for like maybe a hot second, but it was so nice to see them. Like I mentioned earlier, I'm personally really sad that this scene was so short because it showcased that all of the kind deeds Minglan did for her friends and family was recognized in the fact that they traveled all this way to celebrate her son's first month. It would not have been a secret that her husband is currently in jail and that she is no longer a marchioness. But you will notice that many of the people in attendance are there because they were helped in some way, shape, or form by Minglan, which then developed into a strong friendship. That is the case with Madame Zhang and the younger Shen sister, this also includes Yu Yanran, Pinlan, and Shu Lan, and of course, Dan Zhu. It's a wonderful feeling seeing so many of her friends turn out to support her in the face of possible social retribution for being associated with her. That is what Mulan was hinting to earlier. Well, everybody except for Mulan uh, showed up to show her support. Mulan, I think, there was just to kind of laugh it all off. But, like I said, Madame Zhang was the MVP. The festivities don't last long, as shortly after, we're caught in a big fray. Chang Momo sets Minglan's son down in his crib to sleep, and not long afterwards, a figure dressed in all black sneaks into the room, holding a dagger. The figure is intent on killing Minglan's son, Tuan Ge, but... Shi Tao appears to stop this figure, and a fight ensues. After a heated battle where the assassin successfully stabs the bundle in the crib, she is captured and revealed to be Feng Xian, Gu Tingye's concubine that was planted by Madame Qin. Who knew she was an actual assassin? Luckily, her plot was foiled as it is revealed the bundle in the crib was just a fake wooden doll. I personally really like the choreography of the fight sequence. It's pretty rare where we see actual splits happen uh, for a fight sequence. So good for the uh, uh, choreographers here. As Minglan explains to Grandma Sheng later that night, the whole purpose of the banquet was to create some chaos on the property to lure out the forces that want to harm Minglan and her son. It was expected because of the banquet, security would be low and there would be some action against Minglan. And sure enough, they were able to capture Feng Xian in the act. Now they have new evidence to present to court. 
Milan informs her grandmother that she is going to beat the drum tomorrow in her Gao Ming outfit to ask the emperor to reinvestigate Gu Tingye's supposed crimes. Grandma Sheng understands Minglan's view and even brings forth her own witness to help Minglan, Kang Zhaoer. She's the cousin that Minglan helped escape from being a concubine for Gu Tingye uh, at the bedding of the now-deceased Aunt Kang. She came back to help Minglan no matter the cost. What exactly is Minglan going to do? Thus far, Gu Tingye has not revealed the truth about why Gu Tingye killed Aunt Kang or at least the intricacies of Grandma Sheng's poisoning. Minglan is now going to reveal all of this in order to save Gu Tingye. That is why she apologizes to Grandma Sheng because Minglan is going to ruin the Sheng family's future with this act. But she has to do so in order to save Gu Tingye. Grandma Sheng totally understands and says, go do it. And the fact that Kang Zhaoer has returned is another example of Minglan reaping the rewards of her kindness because she could have treated Kang Zhaoer really poorly, but she gave Kang Zhaoer an escape option and she has returned on her own behest to help Minglan. And so the next day, Minglan, in her conferred title or Gaoming outfit, and her select group start banging on the Dongwengu outside the Imperial Palace. By wearing this outfit, this is already against the rules because she has just had her title stripped from her. But it is a symbolic gesture that she is fighting against the unjust she and her husband have experienced. With her are Xiao Tao, Shi Tou, the captured Feng Xian, and Kang Zhaoer. In the main hall, all of the court can hear the drums and a number of officials request the emperor to do a retrial, including Qi Hong. The emperor, however, is short-tempered and erupts at the officials because he does not want to deal with the Gu family drama any further. He even kicks Qi Hong out of the main hall. The group outside is not perturbed whatsoever as Minglan continues to beat the drums. If she's not the one beating the drum, she's kneeling on the ground with her written testimony and evidence in front of the palace gate, loudly shouting the deeds that Aunt Kong did against her family. Problem is, the emperor does not want to hear her. She kneels outside of the palace for an entire day and night without being called into the palace. All of court walks by to see her kneeling and her group beating the drum, and at night, the entire palace hears her as well, from the emperor to the empress to the empress dowager and also concubine Liu. Minglan's brother Changbai is also seen beating on the door of the judiciary, yelling that he's a witness to the crimes Minglan is recounting and wants to give his testimony. It's really sweet because despite his father's urging, Changbai remains resolute that he must help his sister overthrow the wrongful conviction of Gu Tingye. Once again, he does not care what this might mean for the Sheng family, but instead is doing this because he knows it is what is right. His father, on the other hand, is doggedly running around trying to drag his children back from their outward display of disrespect to the emperor 
but to no avail. He's like, what are you two doing? <laughs> After a full day, Ming Lan is still there beating the drums, but her body cannot take it anymore, and she passes out. Next thing we know, she wakes up in the Empress's rooms, where she has a private audience with her. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like her chat with the Empress went well because we soon see her leave the palace on foot with her servants, her father, and Madame Zhang escorting her out. She is walking with heavy steps and at a slow pace. In the middle of the busy street, she breaks down in tears. She takes off her elaborate headdress while uttering the words, Fei Niao Jin, Liang Gong Chang, Jiao Tu Si. Shortly after, she passes out in the streets once again, in her despair. Her family rushes her home. This entire scene is seen by Lan, who watches from the balcony of Fan Lo. She gloats at Minglan's current predicament, but is also shocked to hear Minglan utter those words, which we will explain later on. Lan's moment of glee, though, doesn't last long, because shortly after she heads home, Mulan discovers that her headmaid has been cavorting with her husband behind her back. She catches the two in the act and is absolutely livid. She cannot understand how this maid can betray her like that. But it's evident that Mulan never treated her maids kindly, and so she didn't have much choice but to go with uh, Liang Han, the maid that is. Mulan then directs her ire towards Liang Han. She does not understand why he would do this to her. And now the curtains are lifted between the two as Liang Han stands his ground. He knows exactly how she tricked her way into marrying him and all the unspeakable things she did in order to make it happen. He even knows that she caused his mistress, Trin Kula, to miscarry by using the same tactics her mother used, sending his mistress heavy and oily foods that caused the unborn child to grow too big and could not be born. It's exactly what Mistress Lin did to Minglan's mother and led to Minglan's mother's death. At this point, Liang Han has had enough and grabs the maid's hand and runs off. Mulan screams after him that her feelings are genuine, which is why she married him. But unfortunately, that trust is gone forever. The issue is that Mulan still doesn't believe what she's done is wrong, but is utterly shattered at what just happened to her. After all, she is left exclaiming that she did everything her mother taught her. So why isn't it working? And that is where we close this episode. I feel like the theme for this episode really is reaping what is sown. Mulan finally sees the consequences of both her trickery to get into the Liang family and her treatment of her maids. If she had been kind to her maids, she would not have had this level of betrayal by them. But after all, it's par for the course for her character. If she was kind enough to treat her maids better, she would not have done what she had done to marry Liang Han. For him, what's worse is that she tricked him into marrying her. He doesn't really care about much else. He's primarily upset that she played him. Okay, that was a lot of action for this episode, but we still have a lot of culture and history to discuss, so let's get started. 
First up is the Man Yuezhou, or the One Month Banquet, or the Full Moon Banquet. In Chinese culture, it is customary to host this full moon or one month banquet for a newborn baby. Historically, mortality rates were quite high for newborns, especially in the first thirty days. So, this one month banquet was a celebration of life, indicating that the baby survived to now. The Manyuezhou banquet is celebrated with family and friends, and presents are exchanged. The banquet here. Was purposely kind of hectic. If we recall Madame Zhang's son's Manyuezhou, it was a very grand affair. They typically are. It's the first time the baby is really presented to the world outside a very close family. The one-month banquet or Manyuezhou is still very much a part of Chinese culture today. Next up is the Jinxiangqiao or the Golden Necklace. Which is more of a collar or a choker because it is solid. It first comes up as a topic of discussion because that is the present that Qi Hong spends most of his time trying to find at his home, and they gift one to Tuanger in the episode. The one you see there is a pretty good representation. At the bottom of the collar, there can also be additions like a golden lock or something called a ruyi. These are all. Good representations of what you would typically see, and represent good luck and longevity. Very apt gifts for a newborn. Historically, these xiangquan were bestowed to children in hopes that they would ward off evil spirits. I read an article, and the current theory is that this practice first came from minorities within China over two thousand years ago, and then became popularized. They were first worn as statements of status by the nobility. Over the years, they then became primarily used as gifts for newborn babies. In the present day, minorities in China still wear xiangquan. These xiangquan are usually made with gold, silver, or copper. Sometimes they are also made with jade. Historically, for some local customs, parents would request coins from neighbors, and they would melt these coins with the other ores to create the xiangquan. The significance of this would be that the Xiangquan is blessed with protection of many, or you know, a hundred families, so that the wearer or baby will also have that protection. Next up, let's talk about the Bai Niao Chao Feng, which is the framed embroidery that Yu Yinran gifts to Minglan and her son during the one month banquet. The translation of the saying is "all birds paying homage to the phoenix." We took that translation from Baike, as I think it's quite good. This is actually the second time this Baiyao Chaofeng painting or embroidery has been brought up because Yu Jianran definitely、uh, discussed this with Minglan in the episodes where she was discussing、um, potential marriage. So this Bai Niao Chao Feng phrase also has the meaning of peace under a wise ruler. Feng or phoenix has always represented royalty. Over the years, Feng Huang became more of a female representation, and that's what you would refer to the empress as. There are references to Bai Niao Chao Feng in the Song Dynasty, and the legends trace back all the way to the earliest of Chinese gods and legends. Next up. 
There is a phrase called 跋扈似霍光, which is not an idiom, but it references 霍光, which I think is an interesting person. The emperor says this line when comparing how arrogant or domineering Gu Tingye is, and he's like, we don't want someone who is 跋扈似霍光. As the line literally just means arrogant or domineering, like 霍光. So who is this guy? Huo Guang was a politician during the Western Han Dynasty and died around 68 BC. Well, we don't know his, his birth. Again, another character from the Han Dynasty. He basically deposed of an emperor whom he deemed was not fit to be emperor and searched for a long-lost descendant of the formidable Han Wu Di, which we've talked about many, many times, uh, and pushed this descendant who was lost to the commoner world um, and the great-grandson of Han Wu Di to the throne. This descendant's name was Liu Bingyi and the subject of a couple of Chinese dramas as well. Huo Guang was quintessential in managing the affairs of state for the Han dynasty, but ultimately it was not to save it from its demise. The key takeaway here, though, is that this Huo Guang was so powerful that he got rid of an emperor he thought was unfit to rule. That takes some audacity because Huo Guang was well-connected and so no one opposed him. That kind of power is what the current emperor in our drama is trying to avoid in Gu Tingye. All right, the next topic is going to be the Li Guan, which are the headdresses. So after several weeks of us putting off discussions about headdresses and formal court attire for women, we will spend ample amounts of time today to discuss it. It's going to be quite a lot, so let's all get comfy. We've seen women at court over the course of the drama wearing their formal headdresses. I'll start with the headdresses, or li guan, or feng guan. This includes Grandma Wang and Madame Qin. We've also seen the empress wear her formal phoenix headdress, the feng guan. However, we've held off formally discussing them because, of course, we get to see Ming Lan finally wear her formal court attire in this episode, with headdress and everything. So... We will discuss this now. I'll also be mentioning previous episodes to reference differences between the court attire for the various ladies, so I'll be jumping around a little bit. What's great about these headdresses, though, is that there are paintings of prominent women, especially empresses, that historians, costume designers, and myself can reference to compare between the drama and history, or quite frankly, just learn more about it. Actually, archaeologists have yet to uncover an empress headdress from the Song Dynasty, but there are contemporary paintings of the time and empress headdresses from the Ming Dynasty that serve as pretty good references. Right off the bat, we see Ming Lan's headdress have two wings, one on each side. They're called Bo Bin. The not-so-great purpose of these wings, with all of the beautiful pearls and jewels dangling off of them, was really to limit the movement of women. The goal was to make sure that the women had the right poise and posture while at court. What do I mean? Women wearing the headdress had to 
work to make sure no sound was emitted when walking while wearing it. How do you do that? By walking very slowly and upright, of course. It looks very pretty, but it's ultimately not great as a, a restricting tool or method for women. I don't know, I guess it's to like appease the male gaze. I think we might have talked about this before. The wings on the hats for the men at court. The purpose of those was to actually deter whispering or having conversations at court uh, to conspire against the emperor. If you have basically like a three foot hat span, it's kind of hard for people to hear you. I mean, in the drama, that doesn't deter some people from like whispering. But that was basically the gist of the men's long wingspan. <laughs> Back to the ladies. The number of wings represented the power and prestige, or basically the level of status of the woman. This ranged from one to three. Before Milan was stripped of her title, she was the wife of a marquis, so wife of the second rank. She had one wing. Grandma Wong, the wife of a famous scholar, also only had one. However, if we recall in episode 69, Madame Tin had the full three. So is Madame Tin the most highly ranked? I think so, but I'll discuss a little bit more about this after my next topic. Which is, in this episode, we have a very striking image of Minglan's attire and headdress. Everything is in blue, headdress included. Grandma Wang and Madame Qin's headdresses, though, were gold. Now, Ming Lan's headdress is very similar to paintings of empresses' headdresses and actual uh, headdresses that are currently viewable in museums, specifically with the striking blue color. So what is that blue color made of, or specifically the headdress? Historically, the technique is called Dian Cui. It is a style of Chinese art that features kingfisher feathers. The Cui is for Cui Niao, or the kingfisher bird. The technique first appeared during the Han Dynasty, so dating back around 2,000 years. The Chinese loved blue, and this technique of Dian Cui was favored among the female nobility for creating hair accessories. It was really expensive to make uh, jewelry of the Dian Cui style, and honestly, the display of Dian Cui in art and what has been preserved to today really show the wealth of China throughout the centuries. Dian Cui reached the height of its popularity during the Qing Dynasty, especially during the reigns of Yongzheng and Qianlong, so the 18th century. During this time, even wealthy women would wear these to show off status and wealth, and it was not just reserved for the aristocracy. For those of you who have watched Rui's Love in the Palace, you'll see Rui wearing headdresses with this blue color as well. The last Dian Cui factory closed in 1933 because, well, kingfishers were on the brink of extinction. Nowadays, people still make accessories using the technique, but it's illegal to use actual kingfisher feathers. People use dyed goose feathers or other types of feathers or fabrics as replacements. The electric blue was highly favored from the kingfisher because the color was 
like I said, very striking and it really never faded. So some of these have been preserved for a long time, centuries even. Well, how does one make a headdress or hair accessory with feathers? One plucks the striking blue feathers from the kingfisher bird. Again, this doesn't happen today. Then there's a base typically made of gold or silver in which the feathers laid on top of it. Gold and silver is then welded onto the feather with the desired design of the accessory as the edge. Then one cuts the feather so that it is just left with the gold edges and the blue in the middle. Add some glue and paste on the desired jewels to the middle of it or to the back to create the long hairpin. And then voila, you have a tian cui, or this beautiful uh, accessory. Definitely take a look at some YouTube videos or just marvel or just pause the episode and marvel at Milan's headdress to see the detail and skill that goes into this. Of note, Milan's headdress has birds on it. She is not the empress, so she could not wear a phoenix headdress or feng guan. Most likely, this bird is a huiniao, a legendary colorful pheasant that appears in the Book of Song or Shijing, which was typically used for women of nobility as they could not, like I said, wear a phoenix headdress. What was kind of confusing to me with this scene, though, is I am not entirely sure how the show prioritized these women. What do I mean by that? Minglan is wearing a headdress using the Dian Sui technique, and that is more lavish, more expensive than using pure gold. However, Grandma Wang's headdress in episode 69 is more extravagant than Minglan's, but like I said, that one's made of gold and only has one wing. Madame Qin's headdress in episode 69 has three layers of wings, but the centerpiece isn't really as grand as Grandma Wong's. Eh, I'll just chalk it up to show choices. Maybe I miss a uh, behind-the-scenes video of the show, so I will just leave it at that. However, Minglan's uh, outfit and headdress is definitely the most striking, and I think the drama wanted to showcase her outfit and differentiate hers from the others we've seen previously. All right, that was a lot. Ready for more? Credit for this research actually comes from an excellent post I found online from Kiko, who did a lot of the research. I did the translation and validated elsewhere, but she provided a lot of the information in one location. Next, the discussion will be about a xia pei. It's kind of like a scarf or a shawl that women wore for court and it complemented the headdress. It didn't really wrap around multiple times, but it hung off of the collarbone. We don't see Minglan wear this in episode 71. Grandma Wang wears it in the beginning of episode 68 when she wears her full court attire to meet Empress Dowager Cao. Madame Qin also wears hers when she appears at court in episode 69, although I can't really tell if it's a xia pei or just part of the robe itself. I'll just assume it's a xia pei. The xia pei first appeared in records also in the Han Dynasty. Usage was formalized much more during the Song Dynasty, so during this uh, era here. 
In a portrait of Zhao Xian Taihou, or Empress Dowager Zhao Xian, the mother of the first emperor of the Song Dynasty, one can clearly see both the blue headdress and the xia pei. The xia pei, though, is sewn together at the bottom and completed with a medallion at the end. The purpose of the medallion was actually to keep the xia pei weighted so that it didn't fly around. Both Grandma Wang and Madame Qin don't have this medallion, so maybe, again, they aren't wearing the xia pei, but it could have also been a costume choice so that the two women could actually move around in their scenes. So if you go back to look uh, at their scenes where they have um, the, where they're wearing their headdress and the xiao pei, um, you see that they have the base robe color and then they, there's like that scarf or that uh, like kind of the shawl thing or very well embroidered shawl that like drapes off of their collarbone. So take a look at that. During the Song Dynasty, one could only wear the Xia Pei if it was formally gifted by the emperor. It was only during the Ming Dynasty, actually, though, that it became custom for women to always wear the headdress and the scarf or Xia Pei at court. Over the centuries, actually starting, or legend has it, starting from the Song Dynasty, regular women were allowed to wear a headdress and scarf or a feng guan Xia Pei during their wedding day. So you'll see women in the Song Dynasty, Ming Dynasty, and Qing Dynasty dramas wear the headdress and scarf for that special occasion. Ming Lan does for her wedding. We talked about the feng guan for episode 40, so take a look uh, at her xia pei in that episode as well. The last piece of culture we'll talk about is the phrase that Ming Lan uttered when she left the palace and she was very devastated, said these words, and then promptly passed out. So the phrase I'll say again is Fei Niao Jin, Liang Gong Tang, Jiao Tu Si, Zou Gou Peng. We actually talked about this phrase in Empresses in the Palace. So I'm just gonna <laughs> re say what we talked about in those episodes. The translation is. The birds have been shot, so the bow is no longer needed. The wily hare is dead, so let's feast on the dog as well. This is a metaphor for a person who will exploit someone or something until it has lost all value. Then he will discard that person or item. This is a very... uh unforgiving way of dealing with people and usually people don't go to such extremes in getting rid of people who are of no value. This certainly has very ominous connotations uh, and is, I would say, rather apt right now. The phrase first appears in Shiji or the records of the Grand Historian written by the Han Dynasty historian Sima Qian in 90 BC or so. Second Han Dynasty, Han Dynasty person we've talked about in this episode. Telling you the Han Dynasty is super important. The phrase appears in the genealogy of Yue Wang Goujian Shijia or the House of King Goujian of Yue. The political advisor Fan Li makes this remark after helping the king Goujian reclaim his throne only to be ousted from court and forced to resign. 
For Mingland to utter these words is hugely disrespectful of the imperial family and means that she is ready to cut ties with them at all costs. That is why her father was so shocked uh, she said this line and also why Mualan was also very uh, surprised Minglan would make such remarks for all to hear. Milan said this in a pretty busy street, so for someone like Mulan to overhear was very easy. Clearly, uh, Minglan would not care about the retribution for saying these words. Because technically, if somebody heard her, or if someone like Mulan were to blab to the emperor and empress, uh, dowager or empress, Minglan would have been put in prison. It's that serious of a line. Especially to be saying this out loud in public about the emperor. All right. That was a lot of history. Let's move on to book differences. I'll keep it pretty short and sweet. The drama forges its completely own path here in episode 71. Milan doesn't host a one-month banquet for her son with the purpose of catching an assassin. Feng Xian in the book is definitely not an assassin. She is given the choice of marriage between uh, a lower class man or to become a concubine for a wealthy man. These are all relatively good options given to her by Minglan in the book. In the book, Feng Xian chooses the concubine route. So she doesn't really go and try to kill uh, Minglan's son. So, since there was no death of Aunt Kong and no assassin, Milan doesn't beat the Dongwangu and does not confront the Empress. Mulan and her husband in the book actually never have a falling out. He never finds out about her treachery. In the book, Milan just doesn't really care about her and keeps her distance. She will show up for Mulan on occasion, but... Mulan also has enough tact to not really uh, dabble in waters that are over her head. The show here really dials up the drama to get us to hurdle towards the end. It's calmer in the book in the sense that Mulan has to deal with tough issues, but she's very capable herself and doesn't rely too much on the aid of others as she does in the drama. However, one thing that the drama makes clear in this episode and the book does in the last couple of chapters is the power of relations and what it means to attend social events or voice opinions at court. So earlier on, I really emphasized the theme that this episode focused on reaping what you sow, which could be be good or bad. So for Mulan, it was definitely the bad stuff, whereas Minglan definitely uh, reaped the benefits of her kind deeds to various friends and family. Now let's talk about this relationship component. In this episode, there are two scenes that really make it clear just how embedded Frankly, Minglan and by extension the Sheng family and the Gu family are now at court and where they aren't. The first is, of course, Minglan's son's one month banquet. We have already uh, discussed the attendees, but let's reiterate again what the status is of the attendees. We talked about Madame Zhang, the wife of the Empress's brother, 
uh, and sole daughter of a duke in her own right, and then also the younger Shen sister, the sister of the empress. But we also have Ti Hong, who is a son of a duke, and Ti Hong's wife, Madame Shen, is also from a prominent family. Those are basically the outsiders, but already very connected and powerful in the capital and within the royal family. Let's actually look at Minglan's direct family. Hualan is wife to the son of a count. Molan, despite our dislike for her, is the wife to the son of a count. And Rulan is actually the weakest link of the sisters because she is just married to an official, not an aristocrat. That in and of itself is already a formidable party. It shows that even though Gu Tingye is stripped of his titles, Minglan is not someone to be trifled with. She is still a force to be reckoned with. I mean, you have the empress's sister and sons of dukes at her party. That means a lot. News of this banquet will certainly travel throughout the capital, so Minglan is relatively safe for now. Fortunately, this is also a prime example of why families always wanted an advantageous marriage exactly for scenes like this. Families built wealth and status off of these marriages. Look at the Sheng family. Sheng Hong was just a Shu Chu son. All he had was Grandma Sheng, who was a formidable woman in her own right, but only in one generation. Look at how well his daughters married. They are the ones creating this protective wall for Minglan. Moral of the story, marriages matter. In the book, the advantages of marriage actually serve Molan to her benefit. Her father-in-law died and the eldest son, who happened to be Shu Chu, wanted to split the family or make sure that he got his fair share. No one else wanted that, least of all Molan, because, well, her husband doesn't have any real means of making money and had no role at court. Molan's mother-in-law, the Countess, who we've seen in the show, hosted a banquet in which the female relatives were all invited to deliberate on this topic. Long story short, the wife of the eldest son lost the battle to split the family because she and her relations were no match for the extended relations the rest of the women in the Liang family had. Minglan is a marchioness married to a marquis and was one of only several extended relatives at the banquet. Minglan and Hualan showed up, not for any real sisterly affection for Molan, but because they couldn't leave Molan out to dry. It would look very poorly on the Sheng family if... Mulan was at this uh, very important family banquet in which all of her sister-in-laws had their relatives and nobody showed up for her. No matter what, the Sheng family women needed to represent a united front, no matter how much they fought internally. Family, marriages, and relations did and do matter. And that is kind of another uh, lesson that we saw in this episode. Oof, we told you it was going to be a long episode, but that is it for today. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, as a reminder, if you are in the States and are looking for a website to watch Chinese television 
dramas and movies, please do check out our sponsor, Jubao TV. That's J-U-B-A-O, um, which has online streaming platforms and you can watch it online or on TV for free. The streaming platform online is called XUMO or Zumo. So you can watch that on your computer or else if you are watching it on TV, you can access it via Xfinity or Cox Contour. The music you heard is the zither piece called Lan with sheet music by Bingjiu Won Yeojun and played by yours truly. Once again, thank you all so much for listening. And as a reminder, if you enjoyed what you learned today or heard today, please do leave us a rating on whatever platform you listen to us to. We will catch you all in the next episode.